0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Tonight I would like to share with you some of the key reasons that three of the contemporary Japanese fashion designers, uh, namely Issey Miyake, Yoji Yamamoto, and Rei Kawakugo, the Comme Des Garcons labels, has had such an unprecedented impact on the international fashion industry. For more than a 30-year period, they have often offered the Western world an alternative way of dressing one that is not predicated by glamour, sexuality, or status. It is a fashion that has questioned Western ideals of convention and conservative thinking, and has suggested that fashion, like art, can be infused with meaning, and can celebrate the memory or heritage of a culture. There are countless examples in the history of art which evidence how the West has been informed by the East, but none quite as dramatic is in the history of contemporary fashion design. Issey Miyake, now a man in his 70s, has been called the castle of fashion. And he is thought to be the most revered designer in Japan today. He has created an unparalleled legacy that was based on an understated elegance, a simplicity, and a sculptural aesthetic that is imbued with the cultural traditions of Japan. I think that it is very interesting appreciate that the historical precedent of placing restrictions on excessively sumptuous dress in japan dates back to the late 17th century when a major shift occurred in the role that the samurai leaders played in society at this time their lavish and luxurious custom-made kimonos were replaced by a more sober style of everyday dress this new and mostly black attire came to symbolize self-discipline and good taste expressed by subtle stylistic differences and what was called intelligence in design. If luxuries were present, they were hidden to all except the wearer. Basic cotton kim- kimonos were sometimes lined with silk or silk undergarments were worn under functional outer wear. It is this adage of restraint and refinement that was adopted by Miyake and Yamamoto in particular. Miyake's work pays homage to nature, reflecting his affinity to shapes, which are reminiscent of shells, stones, and seaweed, forms that are an inherent part of Japanese aesthetics. In his Shell Neat Coat of 1985, we see that his garment has become a piece of sculpture, and his collaboration with one of the world's greatest photographers, Irving Penn was instrumental in the presentation of his work as an abstracted three-dimensional form. Penn, like Miaki, employs an art of reduction, with the clothes placed in an emptied, uncluttered space. They are contextless, the subject without the surround. The coat discloses nothing of the body underneath, and sexuality becomes ambiguous. Chicada Pleats, 1989, again visually reiterates through the transparency of a pleated garment the the essence of metamorphosis, that of an insect shedding its skin. (coughs) The magical effect that resulted was described by Penn as seeing the model glowing through this golden paper skin, like an insect set in amber. The fabric was reminiscent of a Burigami, and oiled, handmade paper, often used for making lanterns and parasols. Conceptually, we can identify the textural feel of falling water through the rhythmic lines worked into the bodice of this work entitled Waterfall Body, 1984. The model's face is masked in order to deconstruct any sense of humanness, in order to visually highlight the essence of the sensory experience. Arguably, the garment becomes more than just a body covering. Miyaki's search for innovative form led him to develop other molded shapes, like this plastic bustier, which, I might add, comes in a variety of different colors even though I've just got the black and white version. It became a metaphor symbolizing the armor of the samurai warriors the clothing almost becomes a second skin, a protective outer coating. A visual paradox is created between the shiny black molded plastic bodice and the softer gathering of the fabric skirt. As, in much of Maplethorpe's photographic work, eroticism is an underlying feature. This idea evolved into the production of rattan cages that encase the torso and became pseudo-breastplates for Miyake's female warriors. They were shown in 1983, when Miyake held his first bodyworks exhibition in Tokyo, an exhibition which traveled to major museums around the world, including San Francisco, Los Angeles, and London. Significantly, this was one of the first times in history that the work of a fashion designer was internationally fated, as a significant art form in its own right. For Miyake, fashion collection showings were great dramatic spectacles akin to art happenings or installations. Miyake is a perfectionist, and every aspect of the spectacle was monitored, including the clothing, the setting, the lighting, and the production of his unique silicone mannequins, your choice mannequins, is very, very important to the overall success of the exhibition. This is quite remarkable, because for his twist exhibition of 1992, which was held in the Naoshimi Contemporary Art Museum in Japan, he created plastic bubble mannequins, which created an eerie, ghostly non-presence. Two of the bubble mannequins, which stand on a balcony and look down on the installation as if they were part of the viewing audience and of course the museum itself with this magnificent oculus in the ceiling you know provided quite a theatrical setting for this exhibition in an attempt to underline the importance of the textiles which was miyaki's primary consideration he highlights their presence by draping them across the floor the floor like flowing rivulets When I first saw the images of this exhibition, it reminded me of a story told to me by a third generation Kyoto kimono maker. He said that since ancient times, the textile craftsmen in Kyoto used to rinse their dyes from the kimono fabric by letting the fabric lengths flow in the river which passes through the heart of the city. And I came across uh, this image quite by accident, actually, in a pictorial encyclopedia, and I was so thrilled, and I can't absolutely guarantee that it was Kyoto, quite remarkable. They would wait for the, the river to rise, and then, of course, when the river rose and the river started to run, then the dye would be washed out these great lengths of kimono fabric. The fabric, of course, for the kimono is made up of eight rectangular pieces, and then they all fit together very beautifully. This practice, by the way, was prohibited from the 1930s onwards due to the environmental and health concerns, clearly, about the dyes. The Japanese used initially organic dyes, but with the introduction of synthetic dyes in the early 1800s, of course, that would have posed quite a health threat. A common or shared trait amongst Miyaki, Kawakubo, and Yamamoto is that they all base their designs on the concept of the kimono and the traditional Japanese way of packaging, in which everything is somehow folded, wrapped, revealed, and shaped. Miyake stated, I like to work in the spirit of the kimono. Between the body and the fabric, there exists only an approximate contact. This image of a 1995 garment by Miyake is one of the best that I can find that mirrors his contemporary interpretation of the kimono. He argues that it is the central concept of the space between the body and the cloth, which was most important, as it creates a natural freedom and a general flexibility in the garment. This garment also suggests the traditional techniques of draping, plating, and overlay, characteristics that are evident throughout Miyake's designing career. Like postmodernist art, This garment appropriates and reinstates the ancient art forms of origami or paper folding. Experimenting with the traditional techniques of shiburi, or what's more commonly called tie-dye, he has used strings to create a permanently wrinkled appearance, a trend in fashion that we know has become adopted universally. This is his kabira dress with hood. And we see that some of the fabrics that he uses are semi-transparent, almost appearing to be like a type of paper through which light is diffused and softened. The history of textile development in Japan is centered in Kyoto. Kyoto has been the center of textile development for thousands of years. And the textiles that the new technologies have allowed them to produce are really quite amazing. This is a close-up, this is a detail of that last fabric, and the image illustrates that when you gather the fabric together, it gathers the color together as well. Miyake was known to spend up to 70% of his time considering and developing new and exciting textiles. Pushing the boundaries of textile development, he produced extraordinary fabrics like this one. This is part of his Pleats and Twist 1993 collection. He had asked his head textile designer of over 20 years, a woman whose name is Makiko Minagawa, to make, he said, I want you to make me a fabric that looks like the bark of a tree. And of course, as you can see, she was able to do that very effectively. And later he asked, perhaps a little bit more, more of a difficult question. He said, "Can you produce me and uh, produce another fabric for me that looks like poison? I've never seen a, a picture of that." One. Miyake set the standard for collaborative work between fashion and textile designers, photographers, fine artists, and architects. His guest artist series of 1996 to 97 which was part of his Please Please reign, which spanned over 10 years, resulted from a collaboration with Yasumasa Morimura, who incorporated the top half of Ongra's 1856 painting called "The Source, some of you might recognize that, with an inverted photograph on the bottom half of the garment of Morimura himself, clasping his hands as if in prayer. There were many collaborative projects in Miyake's career. In fact, he did some work with the Chinese pyrotechnic performance artist, whose name is Guo Cheng, who had used explosive fireworks to remember historic events and to commemorate the victims of Hiroshima and the terrorist attacks in London and Madrid. The performance artist poured gunpowder over clothes that were spread on the ground In the shape of a dragon, and he set it alight. The images of the burn patterns that remained were incorporated in Miyake's work. This is particularly poignant. And I might, if you don't mind, I'll just read a section from, uh, from my book, because this is something that always quite amazed me. In the conclusion, and the chapter that deals with Issey Miyake, I pointed out that perhaps one of his greatest contributions in terms of fashion design was his remarkably positive view of the world. Having experienced and survived the Hiroshima atomic bomb blast in 1945, he wrote an article in the New York Times in 2009 endorsing U.S. President Obama's pledge to seek peace and security in a world without nuclear weapons. For the first time, he spoke publicly about the impact the disaster had had on his personal life, and it provides an insight into his philosophy towards design. In his own words, Miyake penned that he preferred to think of things that can be created, not destroyed, and that brings beauty and joy. I gravitated towards the field of clothing design, partly because it is a creative format that is modern and optimistic. I'd now like to talk about the other two Japanese fashion designers, who are pro- were, uh, who are now in their 60s. They're about 10 years younger. Whereas um, Miyake introduced his fashion on the Paris catwalks in the 1970s. It was the early 80s that um, both Yoji Yamamoto and Rei Kawakubo, the Comme des Garcons label, showed their, their first work in a collection showing in 1981. And, of course, their introduction to catwalk fashion was quite spectacular, as you can imagine, by looking at a couple of the models from some of their very, very early shows. When they unleashed their fashions on an unsuspecting Parisian audience, the result was a stunned silence. Their garments shattered all illusions of propriety, glamour, or sophistication. Never before had such garments graced the the French catwalk stage before, clothing that resembled spoiled, ripped, or torn shrouds, layer after layer of sad-looking black drapes. Grim-faced models were purposely made unattractive with pale pancake makeup, bruised-looking lips, and disheveled hair. It was a visual assault on one of the most heralded events on the Parisian social calendar. When the international press finally caught their breath, they penned outrageous comments that were to appear on the fashion pages of every major newspaper around the world. Headlines screamed, Fashion's Pearl Harbor, describing Kawakubo as a bag lady, a derogatory term used in New York to describe the down and out street dwellers who pick clothing of garbage bins that they later sold as rags. Kawakubo's curt response was that she actually saw the bag lady as the ideal woman to dress, and that a woman who earns her own way was her typical client. While this seemed a shocking retort for a fashion designer to make, it was an inherent feminist critique which was echoed in many different forms of art and design practice in the 1980s and 1990s. Yamamoto offered a different explanation for introducing clothing like this. Paris. He said that he liked old clothes, as they became like friends, that you were reluctant to throw away. He gained much pleasure perusing photographs that the German photographer August Sander had taken of working class society in the interwar years. These, he said, inspired his work. The photographs depicted hundreds of anonymous figures wearing boiler suits, dungarees, overalls and pea jackets clothes that sharply reflected their lives. According to art historian Lucy Lippard, both photographs and found objects were used by artists to capture a similar moment in time, a trace of both the presence and the absence of human existence. Photographs, she said, are seen both as facts and as ghosts and shadows. They are the imperfect means by which we fill the voids of memory in modern culture. Memory clearly plays a major role in Yamamoto's work. In fact, it could be described as exuding an honorable solemnity, an existential sense of self, garments that became one with the person who wears them, subordinated to the force of his or her personality. At the same time, they possessed a timeless quality. I think it's important to reiterate the common ground that links these fashions to postmodernist artistic practice. The designers Miyake, Yamamoto and Kawakubo produce work that is imbued with the history of the past, yet look, looks dynamically towards the future through a poetic amalgam of ideas and functions. All three Japanese designers rejected change for change's sake, and instead chose to work on the refinement and evolution of previous collections. The evolution of an idea was the basis of Japanese fashion. The conceptual process of serialization, revisited by many conceptual visual practitioners since the 1960s, is integral to the Japanese approach to design. Their clothing has created a visual language that strengthen[s] the converging line that exists between fashion and art. The impoverished aesthetic that both Yamamoto and Kawakubo presented the world presented to the world became fashion's response to similar deconstructivist anti-art movements that dominated from the 1980s onwards. Their work reflected the deconstruction of haute couture practice. But it also deconstructed sartorial ideas associated with Western modes of conspicuous consumption. One might also argue that the economic recession of the early 1980s, with the subsequent growth in unemployment, created a consumerist environment which embraced this aesthetic of poverty—a term, by the way, which was coined by Harold Coda a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And he used this term, which is actually quite an interesting term, the aesthetics of poverty, because it reminded him of a 100 years earlier, the 1890s, when decadence was seen as an aesthetic ideal. The work that Kawakubo and Yamamoto produced in the early 80s was very difficult to tell the garments apart. So fashion historians noted that there was a revolution brewing as consumers began to look for something more in their fashion purchases than superficial styling, prestigious labels. Instead, they were looking for clothing that said something about themselves. The French scholar, Gilles Lipovetsky in 1994, argues that identity through individualism and dress has become the primary purpose of fashion design in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Perhaps this explains why Yamamoto's distressed black clothing seemed particularly appealing to intellectuals, academics, artists, and even the more conservative architects as it symbolized the cult of the individual. It seemed to merge the emotional, the intellectual, and the aesthetic into one. It's a symbolic fusion of popular culture and radical thinking. The color black moved into the realm of the everyday. Again, referencing the 1980s in particular. Yamamoto is often quoted as saying, people wear my clothes to make a statement. There was a kind of democracy, he said, about black clothing. Another quote that I particularly like is when he said, "Black is modest and arrogant at the same time." Kawakubo points out that Yamamoto's clothes became a type of default uniform, and black became the bestseller, the color of streetwear dress, a phenomena that, has, that was sustained for decades. If one makes the link back to the bohemian black that dominated the sartorial landscape of the 1950s. It is not surprising that he has been described a number of times as an existentialist thinker. Interestingly, the Japanese historian Miyanaga explained that amongst the older Japanese generation, Jean-Paul Sartre had been extremely popular in the 1950s and 60s. And his philosophy suggested to these Japanese who felt lost between tradition and westernization, especially after World War II, that continuity between the past and the future was an act of social creation, brought about by human efforts. Many intellectuals, in their writing and their debates, attempted to consolidate this synthesis between the past and the future, based on interpretation of Sartre's thought. While we appreciate that of the visual arts, the meaning of the term deconstruction Emanated from the influential French style of philosophical thought and the writings of Jacques Derrida. In terms of fashion, it began to gain currency following the deconstructivist architecture exhibition held in 1988 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. In her essay entitled Undressing Architecture Fashion, Gender, and Modernity, the architect Mary MacLeod makes a link between a lexicon of concepts such as structure, form, fabrication, and construction that both fashion and architecture share. From this point onwards, this I'm talking about 1988 onwards, fashion journalists, including Amy Stindler including Amy of the New York Times, began to refer to deconstructivist fashion as a way to explain the unfinished appearance of such garments seen on the Paris catalogs. And I think also it's important to underline the link between fashion architecture and in a number of leading international architectural journals. They've always had a feature, fashion feature included in each um, edition. For the Japanese, the literal dismantling of material, a construction technique or an idea, was closely linked to the beliefs and concepts of Zen Buddhism. This is illustrated clearly in the Japanese tea ceremony where beauty is found in objects which are aged with time and use, and where individuality or difference appeals to the humanistic spirit. That which is omitted, whether in literary writing or in the visual arts, created an ambiguity which in turn becomes a suggestion of meaning that is the source of its beauty. The Japanese concept of imperfect beauty could be interpreted as dignity masked in the garb of implied poverty, or as a fragile perishability. In terms of Japanese deconstruction clothing design, techniques were deliberately compromised. Hems were scissor cut and uneven. Fabric was knotted. Deliberate holes or drop stitches appeared in knitting. Threads used for seaming were of an opposite color and they took on the effect of broad basting, normally used in the preliminary stages of construction. Pattern making moved away from the modernist tropes of standardization and modularization, and form became divorced from function. While only the finest fabrics were used, haute couture techniques were sabotaged. Traditions of the fine finishing broken, and spatial concepts repositioned themselves in relation to the body underneath. It would be very, very difficult to actually copy one of Kawakubo's garments. And of course, fashion piracy has always been a huge issue throughout the history of, of fashion design. But when we appreciate the complexity of these patterned pieces, they become uncopyable. There's only one other designer in the history of, of fashion. That was a haute couture designer of 1910, whose name was Madeleine Vionnet. She's probably the only other designer whose work they said was uncopyable. Fashion journalists loved to attend the Comme des Garcons collection showings, such as this one in 1997, as one learned to suspect the unsuspected in Kamakubo's work. Called Dress Becomes Body, but renamed the Bump Collection by the press, she attempted to deconstruct the human figure as well as the garment. Implicit in the message, was the feminist sentiment that women should be admired for their minds and not their bodies, a response commonly used by Kawakubo. I think it's also worthwhile mentioning that Rei Kawakubo does not have background training in fashion or design. She was an English literature major from a university in Japan, and her father was a professor. So when we talk about the conceptualism of her work, this is probably one of the reasons that people suggest um, for her particular philosophy towards design. She revisited this theme in her 2010 inside decoration collection showing, where padded pillow-like forms engulf the body. When asked to explain her motivation for such collection, she would simply and enigmatically reply with the comment, what is in front and what is behind? And then she would walk away. And you'd have to think about that. Undoubtedly, her philosophy towards design was underlined by a mission to question stereotypical images and perceptions of women through her fashion. Like Duchamp, she became the dadist of contemporary fashion. Her ideas regarding deconstruction not only applied to the making of the garment, but to the selling and promotion of the product as well. Kawakubo had worked on a collaborative photographic project Postmodernist fine artist Cindy Sherman, a name that some of you might recognize a few years earlier in 1994, as a means of publicizing her collection in a different postmodernist fashion. While Sherman chose the calm clothing that she wished to, to wear, it was contextualized in an unconventional setting where the focus was centered on confrontational theatrical images made up of bizarre disjointed mannequins and masqueraded interiors. More recently, in 2010, she teamed up with the American conceptual artist whose name is Stephen Shannabrook to advertise her shirt collection. His work deals with addictions and the images of his crumpled paper surgeries, as he called them, which were distorted faces of women, almost reminiscent of de Kooning's women's series of the 1960s, played on the concept of psychological as well as physical distortion. During the first decade of the 21st century, individuality created through eclectic dress became the order of the day. Kawakubo, one of the most successful business entrepreneurs in the fashion industry today, addresses this fashion trend which emerged from the streets of Harajuku in Tokyo. In her collections between 2005 and 2010, she would combine sculpted leather Vikings jackets lashed together with giant whip stitches, with ballerina uh, ballerina tutus often worn under bike shorts or netted pants with ruffles alone. In conclusion, Japan's willingness to embrace the avant-garde is evident not only in its fine art and architecture, but in its fashion design as well. I have discussed three of Japan's leading designers in my lecture tonight, individuals who have become leaders in the international fashion industry. They are niche designers who have not followed popular stylistic trends. They have remained financially independent of the mega fashion syndicates which dictate their designers' stylistic direction. While the work of Yamamoto Kawakubo was initially simply framed as another form of anti-aesthetic, their contribution to the evolution of 20th century fashion has been much more profound. Their work, along with Miyake's, underlines the notion that culture, conceptualization, and experimentation can be integral to fashion as it is to art. Undoubtedly, the impact of the Japanese designers upon their peers and the next generation of fashion designers has been without precedent. There is not a designer nor a fashion student worldwide who's not familiar with their work. They made their mark in an industry far too long dominated by the hegemony of Eurocentric design, opening the way for greater multicultural involvement and a broader interpretation of what constitutes beauty on the catwalks of Paris. Thank you for your kind attention. (laughs) For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.